0: Hello and welcome to the podcast series on beingfulness by Professor Ram Nidamolu, Practice Professor of Organizational Behaviour at the Indian School of Business. My name is Pavitra, your host and friend through this series. With each emerging episode of this series, Professor Ram, through his narration of personal anecdotes and stories from the Upanishads, will help us break down the concepts of beingfulness. Make sure to stay with us till the end of each episode where we pose a pressing managerial question to Professor Rao. In our last conversation with Professor, we touched upon the concept of higher purpose. Now the story of Nachiketa told us about the path of deep meaning and joy, the path of Sreyas. Now that was a great story, but what we want to know today is how do we make sense of these concepts in our present day? Because if you ask me, in these terrible times, it's quite challenging to find meaning and joy in our lives right now. So, Professor, how are you reconciling these concepts to the current day?
1: Right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, these are terrible times. These are times of uh, you know many people dying around us. And uh, this is a time to re-examine what we really care about. And I think uh, this is truly, I think, the great... Uh, Um, plus a positive aspect about what we are. And there's clearly a lot of suffering, clearly a lot of uh, pain and death and so on. But I think on the positive side, it gives us time to reflect what matters a lot to us, what matters most to us. In the presence of death, what matters most? So it allows us to go back to our core values, our core friendships, uh, things that we have wanted to do in our life, but perhaps didn't find the time until now, Maybe rediscover old uh, hobbies and passions that uh, we've neglected. Maybe it's you know music that you've played and then gave up because of work and so on. Or, you know, and I talk to my students. There are many things like this. Someone used to play badminton twenty years ago, gave it up, and now rediscovers badminton. Gardening, simple things like gardening, that really uh, you know attend to our deep heart's core in a way. That phrase. So that's something that we can reconnect with that deep heart score. I think it's a great opportunity, despite the death around us. You know, choose that path of Shreyas. Find what is that Shreyas, that higher path that leads. You know, it is not a journey to this other world. The Upanishads have always said these are symbolic. It's not a real journey you make to this other world, but it's a journey you make metaphorically to an inner world. And that, I think, is the opportunity to embark on a new journey.
0: And how do you think that'll help us, this, this new journey? I think where I have difficulty is in understanding this idea of having a higher purpose. Why is it so important to find the higher purpose?
1: Yeah, so it's very interesting. You know, when I, mean, when I say purpose, I don't mean a grand purpose. You don't need a purpose that I'll go out and save the world, that I'll go out and uh, feed 100,000 people. It really is a purpose that means something to you. It could be your definition, it could be a small purpose. It could even be a purpose that I'll take each day with uh, equanimity, you know, I will not go up and down. That's quite fine, something that's meaningful to you. And you know, it could be that uh, I will be less anxious about the crisis around me. I will uh, be more positive as I do this. It could be any purpose really, I'll be more in the moment. That too could be a purpose. Or I will, uh, you know, pursue that hobby that I've struggled with in the past, like, as I mentioned, gardening. Each of us have things we would want to do, but gave up thinking it's not within our means. So the advantage of such a purpose is um, really manifold. There's a psychological aspect to it. It gives us something to wake up to in the morning. It gives us a sense of excitement, a sense of making progress. But there's also, and this is the research on me, there's some excellent research that uh, suggests that uh, those who have a sense of purpose actually live longer than those who don't. And the data suggests that uh, they have a 15% uh, greater chance of survival in the next 14 years of their life compared to those who don't have a sense of purpose. So in a way, the psychological elements of uh, having a sense of purpose increase our immune system. And you know, make us physiologically better in terms of well-being. So yeah, so there's an emotional, a psychological, you know, all the different elements, a spiritual, a social element, and a physiological, physical health aspect to having a sense of purpose. And again, it doesn't have to be a grand purpose. It doesn't have to be an earth-shaking purpose. You don't have to be a Mother Teresa or Gandhi. It could be your own small making a difference in your own small way
0: times when we hear the words higher purpose like you said we think of a grand gesture or an earth shaking purpose like but what you seem to be implying is something a lot simpler and if you don't mind me asking what purpose would you say you found for yourself?
1: Oh I think it's very much uh, to practice to, to develop let me start with that develop this whole concept of beingfulness that emerged from those experiences at UCLA and uh, to practice it, most importantly, because I can't, uh, you know, preach what I haven't practiced myself, and then to write about it, to teach it, to research it, to implement it, and to, you know, hopefully convey to others as much as I can, whatever remains in my life. So this is a purpose uh, in terms of enabling this field of beingfulness that goes beyond my job. You know, I can see it as something that I'll do after I leave uh, ISB. Hopefully, I'll do it till, uh, till, I, till the last breath that I have. Because it's a purpose that uh, you retain with you regardless. You know, It's, it's your deep uh, core, in a way. And that's the one thing that will stay with you until your last breath. That inner witness in you, whatever you call it, the Atman in you. That's the one thing that will stay until your very last breath, and perhaps beyond, I don't know that. So yeah, this is a purpose that uh, goes beyond anything else, It's beyond, beyond your profession, beyond uh, perhaps even your health. So yeah, that's the advantage.
0: Okay, that makes a lot more sense. One thing I've been wanting to ask is, how come the Upanishads, I mean, we know from the first episode about your personal struggles during your PhD, but what about the Upanishads kept you hooked?
1: Yeah, I just want to make one thing clear. I mean, I don't want to sound like this guy who's all about ancient India and um, no one else mattered at all, right? Uh, you, you, I just let me just set the context here. This is actually part of uh, what is called axial age wisdom. The Upanishads were one uh, piece of that uh, mosaic, I guess, and there was similar thinking in ancient Greece. There was similar thinking in ancient Mesopotamia. Chinese civilizations of that period and I'm referring to the period uh, 800 BC to 300 BC and uh, and many other countries so that whole period is called the axial age by a German uh, philosopher historian called Karl Jaspers so yeah so it's not unique to the Upanishads it's common to many of the world's great religions and it's this thinking that also seeded uh, Christianity it is also central to Judaism So it's in a way, this is what we've inherited. And I focus on the Upanishads because that's what I focused on. I grew up with and uh, I put some effort in. But it's not unique to it at all. Uh, Similar thinking was prevalent in other religions. This just happens to be something I'm more comfortable with. So yeah, it's something that I resonate with, given my background.
0: Wait, You say you grew up with the Upanishads. Um, Could you tell us a little more about this? Was it a part of your upbringing?
1: Yeah, so I, I would say... We all grow up at some stage, whether we are young, we listen to uh, the Bhagavad Gita, clearly. Some of us may come across Upanishads, but we all know at some level that they're the Vedas, that uh, the notion of of the Atman and so on is not uh, strange to many of us. And so I grew up in a household where, uh, on one hand, I had a father who was a scientist. So I'd say, you know, I come from a background where uh, my grandfather was a teacher. And uh, my, so we come from a background of, uh, you know, it's a Brahmin background, uh, very devout. My grandparents, great-grandparents used to recite uh, the Vedas in front of a temple in their village and so on. They would build temples, recite the Vedas. So there's that part of it. My grandfather was a teacher, high school teacher and headmaster. And uh, he was interested in both the Bhagavad Gita and spiritual matters as well as in English. So he was an English teacher as well as a teacher of uh, Telugu and uh, and so on. And so I think that split has come down. So my father was not very much a believer in this. He was a scientist, very much a scientist in the mold of uh, Homi Baba. It was, you know, Homi Baba at that time was the one who collected together a lot of great scientists in TFR and uh, launched these great programs. So my father was one of them. He and his immediate boss, uh, Professor Govind Swaroop, and a number of others. So they're all, in that sense, nation builders, scientific, uh, I would say secular, atheist probably. So that's one half of me, the kind of scientific temperament. And uh, the other half is my mother, very religious, very devoted, very much a believer in uh, our Puranas, our traditions, our rituals, our gods and goddesses very deeply uh, devout in many ways so i think both strands are on me one half of me is extremely scientific and rational the other half is uh, very i'm um, yeah, not use the word religious but uh, maybe spiritual in that sense so these are the two that i've continued there's certainly a conflict between the two that you know is this real is the atman real for example is a question we always ask, and uh, is the scientific approach sufficient? So I've come to the answer that you need both. That science is uh, wonderful in its domain, that you know, this whole notion of empirical reality, but you need both. You get meaning from the spiritual side, you get, uh, I guess, usefulness and practical stuff, pragmatic stuff from the scientific side. You have to reconcile the two. And I think in my mind, uh, that's the struggle you have, I've had all through my years, to reconcile the two.
0: Now, a struggle between science and spirituality must have been very hard to reconcile. Now, this is a wonderful insight into your background and upbringing. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. And we can't wait to hear more about how you reconciled this kind of conflict in the future episodes. Given the relatability and the applicability of the concepts of beingfulness in all of our lives and work, we brought Professor back into the studio and posed to him some questions that we've been receiving from alumni of his courses and also listeners of this podcast. So here is this week's question. I think one of the most relevant questions we've received so far, at least relevant personally to me as well, is um, that very often you're stuck in a place that's paying the bills and you're you know, making ends meet. And it looks like the practical thing to do. uh, But then you figure out that that's not where your heart is and that's not your passion. Um, And then, unfortunately, in certain cases, your passion doesn't really pay the bills like your job is. In situations like that, what do we do? I think this is a question that's come up in multiple forms um, over the years. So what do we do? How do we reconcile these?
1: uh, No, um, this is almost an eternal question, right? It's an eternal perennial question. It's right. something that uh, almost all of us. I certainly have faced it many times. Mm. And, uh, and I think the the dilemma here is uh, there is the practical thing that you should do, which is uh, do this work, make a living, support your family, pay the bills, right. which is a practical thing to do. Right? Right. That's something that uh, you know an earlier generation. We all grew up that way. That's the thing to do. Mm. But then you're drawn by something else. Often our passion is somewhere else. We love something else that's very different from what we're doing now. Yes. That's what we feel will come alive with that. That uh, That's truly the passionate thing to do and so on. And this core dilemma between pursue your passion versus staying with the practical, your head versus heart, Yes. is something that tears us apart. Yes. Many of us, we've been torn apart by it. Yes. And it has happened to me. I uh, almost see this as the tension between the rational and, uh, I don't want to use the word irrational, but uh, the rational and um, the subliminal or the transcendent, right, something like that. Right. Right? Or the head and the heart is what we have said. And uh, so I have different stages of my life, but I particularly remember when I was in academia and you know I just felt my passion somewhere else. This was 30 years ago. Okay. And I describe it in my book and... Uh, So what I've learned now in the past uh, 30 years of thinking over it, experiencing it, seeing many people who've gone through this struggle, is uh, to do it in a way that is uh, both, right? Mm. Uh, First of all, uh, we often have passions that we think we would love to do. Mm. And then when we start doing it, we realize we hate it. Or it's not practical, or it's just not what we wanted. We do change our passions. It's not one true passion in life. Mm. what that suggests to you is uh, before you really know it's the thing you want to do you have to try it out mm. you have to get some experience with it and to test the tyres, kick the tyres and so on but how do you do that and what I recommend to people is um, make that passion what you want to do if you're thinking of setting up a school somewhere to teach uh, uneducated or uh, teach uh, you know, the marginalised elements of a society yes. right? poor people, children who really need it Whatever it is that you wish to do. It could even be just traveling. could be photography. could be uh, gardening.
0: Hmm. Something
1: that you feel, opening a restaurant. So at some level, make it more tangible. And uh, there are ways to do it. Think of it as uh, you're creating uh, an operation of it. Hmm. And most importantly, see if some of that can be done now through your current work. Find ways to add to your work. And uh, see if some of that can be folded into your work. The okay. thing that you want to do that is core to that other thing, the passion, right. see if you get an experience with it in your current work. And try it out. Use your current work. There's nothing better than your current organization with all its resources, its technologies, its people, its customers to be a experimental ground for what you want to do.
0: Oh, great. This is very, very helpful. Okay, Thank you. great. With that, we come to the end of episode two of the podcast series. In the next episode, We will hear of a great symbolism of two birds in a tree. So stay tuned. You can send in your questions on beingfulness at gmail.com or through LinkedIn and Twitter. You can follow us through the links provided in the description below. Keep listening to the Beingfulness Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in today.